The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. This week, we'll be featuring an interview Carol previously recorded with baritone Michael Chioldi. I'll back out at this point, Carol. Take it away. So we're recording this conversation on Tuesday of Tech Week for La Traviata, and so we have with us one of our wonderful cast members who is a Utah favorite and also a dear friend of mine. We've known each other for 20-some-odd years. Oh, my gosh. And it's uh, the wonderful baritone Michael Kioldi. So, Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Carol. It's great to be back in Utah. Oh, always glad to have you here. How many shows have you done in Utah now? I believe this is my seventh. Uh, my very first show was in 2004, which was uh, Lucia de Lamamor. Right. And then I believe I did Falstaff, um, Trovatore, Zalome. What are we missing? There's another one in there. Tosca. Uh, Tosca. Tosca. So that's my sixth time. Yeah. Lots of villains, actually. Lots of in villains, there. yes. I mean, so for those of you who may or may not know out there, baritones are lucky, shall we use that word, to Definitely. play some of the very ominous, villainous characters in operas. It's just the way, I guess, that the voices worked out. They have dark hue to their voice, and they sound <laughs> scary and... Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think that's about? Why well, are the baritones always evil? It's interesting. I mean, I now I'm playing the villains, but earlier on I played a lot of the comedic roles like Papageno and Barbara Seville. So when I was younger, my voice was sort of lighter and more lyrical. And as I've grown older, the voice got a little heavier, a little thicker, a little darker, a little more complex, just like the characters I play. Right. So I think that that's probably a good reason why. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is one of the fun things about singers is the voice they have at age 26, which was when I met Michael, is not the voice they'll have a few decades later. <laughs> because you can say my age, it's okay. So, well, <laughs> I'm 50. And 50 and fabulous, that's what it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's so much interesting physical development that happens in the voice because it's it's not like the violin. You don't buy a violin when you're 26 and it's a fantastic Stradivarius or whatever, but it's going to be the same instrument. It will respond to conditions, but the voice is always changing. Always. I mean, to conditions, uh, altitude, thank you very much, um, <laughs> dryness, um, humidity, heat, cold. I mean, it changes every day, but it also really changes as you develop as a singer when you get older. Um, I think my voice, sort of like in the eights, 28 had a big change, 38 had a big change, 48 had a big change. So, And now I think I'm, I'm pretty settled. I think where I'm, I'm going to be where I'm going to be for the next probably 10 or 15 years. Fantastic. And it's a really great place. I know those of you who have seen Michael on the Capitol Theater stage are excited to have seen this Traviata because we'll be sharing this podcast sometime after the La Traviata has closed. Thanks. So, Michael, you were really, I don't want to say fortunate because you worked your you know, took us off to yeah. make it happen. But you had an early, early Met debut, a young age. I did. Relatively um, speaking. So we met in Houston when I was in the Houston Opera Studio. Prior to that, I was at Yale University, and I had done the Santa Fe Opera Young, young Artist mm -hmm. Program or Apprentice Program. And then I went to the Houston Grand Opera Program, 
And while I was there, I sang, I don't know, maybe I was one of maybe one or two baritones in the program at that time. Right. Um, Young Artist Program is sort of a development program, which you have one here, a great one here. Absolutely. With we Utah have a Opera. quartet of singers here in Utah, just one of each voice of the major voice types. But I was also in the Houston Opera the Houston Grand Opera Studio, right. uh, just after Michael, quote-unquote, graduated. <laughs> and um, we, I was the only pianist, but we had one or two of each voice types. But they were different types of baritones. Right. You might have a, a heavier bar- baritone, and then you might have a lighter baritone. At the time, you were the a lyric baritone. That's right. And oh. and I think I was I ended up uh, doing like 10 roles in two years there with some really amazing artists. I got oh, to yes. sing with Ava Martone. I got to sing with Hildegard Behrens, some of the greats of the opera world ever. Um, then when I graduated, as you say, the program in 1995, I, um, I applied for a bunch of competitions and I ended up winning the Metropolitan Opera competition and several others. And, um, I got contracted actually from an audition in Santa Fe. They do these open auditions where a lot of agents and heads of companies come and the young artists, the apprentices get to sing for all of these people. It's, it's a, a really, really wonderful thing. I've a, been honored because I'm on the Santa Fe Opera Music staff. I've been honored to play these auditions and I liken it. I always tell singers not to get too wound up over them because they are, it's like speed dating for singers. <laughs> it's, you're just singing one aria for these people and, and it's just like going out for coffee and trying to decide if you want to meet up again for dinner later on. Right. But occasionally amazing things come out of it right? Be, just because of timing. Right. So the late great Ed Purrington who ran the Washington National Opera at that point had hired me uh, from that audition to sing uh, Barbiere and uh, was a great cast. It was uh, Vivica Jeannot and right. uh, Marion Cornetti. Wonderful Alaskan mezzo. Alaskan mezzo, Marion Cornetti, mm-hmm. also from Pittsburgh. And uh, I'm from Pittsburgh. And um, then actually the Met was coming down to hear Vivica uh, for something at the Met. And they ended up hearing me as well in the same show. And um, they gave me a cover contract. A cover contract is like an understudy. Mm -hmm. So if someone gets sick, I'm there to take over for them. Um, Indeed, that's what happened. It was opening night of the season, 1996. Um, And what was the role you were understudying or covering? um, It was the role of Fleville, who is um, in André Chignet. So it's about the French Revolution. And I was playing one of the aristocracy ah and i'm only in act one i get my head cut off so you don't last long in that opera (laughs) i don't last long it's a five-act opera (laughs) but um i ended up singing my debut was opening night of the season and um uh i got to sing with luciana pavarotti and aprile milo juan pons just amazing people I, i will never forget it because normally at the met after you finish your role, if you're not further in the opera, you get to bow, take a page bow after that act. And a page bow is a is lingo that we use in opera, and it's where they uh, just open the curtain a little bit, and rather than having a full cast bow at the end of the stage, you just come out through the curtain opening right. and take a bow a little bit, often a solo bow, right. or, or in a small group of people who maybe are getting ready to leave for the evening. They're not in the rest of the show. Right. And I remember coming out and just being so happy and... and um, Maestro Pavarotti had made his way to the pit and he was screaming up to me and saying, Bravo, Michael, bravo. So it was so exciting. It was just a thrilling, thrilling yeah, night. What an me. exciting bravo to get. I know. And you're thinking, but wait, I should be yelling that at you, <laughs> Maestro. Know. It was oh. just uh, an amazing, amazing evening. I'll never forget it. 
Yes, crossing paths with those stars, there's nothing like it. I remember the first time I had to play a rehearsal for Samuel Ramey, the great bass baritone at Houston, and I could hardly speak, let alone play the piano. I know, I know. I'm So thrilling. I've been fortunate to sing with Sam several times as well. I He was my, my uncle in Hamlet. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, he's just amazing, amazing person, amazing artist. The best artists are also the most generous and the most down-to-earth. I think that's... Absolutely. The myth of the diva opera star is that's it's definitely a myth. There are some out there, but we're so lucky to just have a, a lot of really regular people who just do a very unusual job. Absolutely. I think the diva thing is sort of overplayed a little bit too, which is great. I mean, for the drama bit. I'm always for keeping the drama on the stage. Keep the drama on the yeah, stage, exactly. actually. That's our motto here at Utah Opera. <laughs> you sort of understand it when people are so busy, their careers are so busy and they're they're singing so much that they have to sort of watch for themselves Mm -hmm. and at times they will say no to things where normal the average singer probably would say yes but someone who's a superstar who's so busy and pulled in so many directions oftentimes they usually say yes but it's it's if if it's a no in those situations if they feel like they've been asked to do something unusual it's really self-preservative it's really because they're concerned about their ability to create their art yeah they're not Not being the diva yeah yeah, right it's not because they just can't be cooperative (laughs) right Oh, so, um, Michael, you've been in Utah so many times, and I just, I love the way you've made Utah almost like, I don't know, you want to call it a second, a third, a fourth home. Yes. Uh, you live in New York City. I do. Full-time, or that's your residence. It full is. Full-time is a strong word for a, a traveling <laughs> opera singer. That's true. So, um... In Utah Opera, we bring in singers from all over, and we one of the, part of their deal, so to speak, uh, is to be housed by the Utah Opera, and uh, typically that's done in downtown. But Michael has done it his own way for about the last <laughs> what I would say after about the second or third gig, you started going rogue yeah, in the housing situation. I was singing again in Washington D.C., and I was at a party and. I was uh, speaking to someone and they were like, what do you do for a living? And I, I said, oh, I'm an opera singer. And he was like, hey, honey, come here. And he called his wife over and he said, this guy's an opera singer. And we started talking. They said, where are you going next? And I said, Utah. And they said, you should stay at our house. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, fine, fine, fine. It's a very swanky party, a very swanky yes. D.C. party. So I didn't really think anything of it. Well, the person I was staying with there ended up being very good friends with them. And so... I did end up staying in their house, and this is now the fourth time that I've stayed at their house up in Park City, and it's just so beautiful, especially this time of year. It's fall. Oh, of course. Fall in and, Utah. Well, oh. All the seasons are beautiful, but fall is really quite amazing. I woke up this morning to have coffee. I usually have a coffee on the balcony, and the sun is shining. And it's normally, you know, maybe mid-60s uh, up to 70 degrees, like around noon, mm-hmm. 1 o'clock. That's when I have coffee. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, oh, someone took out their paintbrush last night and painted the mountains because overnight it just sort of changed and it was yes. so gorgeous this morning and the air is so clean. It's lovely. I love it up there. Yeah. I, th- I think you make a trade off because you have to, you have a commute that some of us maybe don't have, but, uh, you get it's those- not bad. I mean, I say that I probably could do that, that little trek of road blindfolded now because, <laughs> You've done it so many times. I call it the luge because it's like so back and forth. Yes. The first time I drove it, it was like crazy. Um, 
I was like, I thought I would probably not stay up there because of the commute, but now I've gotten so used to it that I kind of love it. And I always plan accordingly and get a card that is appropriate mm-hmm. for the <laughs> yes for the season. And yes, the for the commute. twists and turns. Yes, exactly. Because you've been here all times of year, haven't you? Not I just have. in the fall. Yeah, I remember one time I was here in spring, and I think it was April, like late April, and we had a heavy snow. And I was like, what? <laughs> spring in Utah. We yeah. all, those of us who live here know about spring in Utah. It's uh, unpredictable and delightful at the same time. So what are some of the other challenges you run into? You, you spend how much, how, what's the proportion you would say you spend on the road compared to in your home in New York City? Um, I'm I mean, real fortunate these days. Or I like to say I'm having a big second act, uh-huh. which is great. Um I spend probably 10 months of the year on the road and two months at home. And it's usually not two months in a row. Right. It's It's normally four days here, a week there, a couple weeks. If if we get a couple weeks, we're really lucky. This spring, I was really fortunate because I was covering at the Met. I was an understudy again, and I had three roles right in a row. Um, One was Iago and Othello. The other one was Rigoletto. And the third one was uh, Scarpia, which I've done here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was there for five five months. And um, I was really happy to be home for five months straight. It was amazing. What a luxury. And you were able to be home with your husband. Yes. Have a normal domestic life for a while. It was amazing. It took us a while to sort of get to know each other again, (laughs) which was great because I'm always on the road. And um, but it was wonderful. We had such a great time. I got to I love to cook. I love like wine and dining and I love tennis. And so I got to play tennis and I got to see all my friends. I got to entertain um, in our great apartment in New York. I have this, mm-hmm. We have this great view of the East River, of oh, the Brooklyn yes. Bridge. I've seen this on Facebook. I've never <laughs> experienced it for myself. We refer to it as roof teenies because mm-hmm. we have this great rooftop, which is a shared rooftop, not mm-hmm. a private rooftop. <laughs> I mean, let me be clear. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing well, but um, not that well. Um, so it's, it's lovely. And there's rarely any people up there, but I, I love to entertain. I do sort of these like, you know, party flatters. And I'm familiar and with them. I have been the reps recipient of Michael's hospitality. He <laughs> loves to have the cast out up to Park City when he has one of these great homes and yes. open the home. It's happening to us. again. Oh, yes. okay. We'll talk about that later. Okay. You're talking about having a second act. Part of your second act, you've added a slash role, so to speak. You know, you're now a singer slash teacher. Right. You are um, really have built up quite a studio of voice students. Yeah. How did I'm, that come about? In you know, it started when I was quite young. Um, I was after Yale, and I was at the Met, and my good friend Matthew Polinsani, who I went to Yale with, I went to graduate school with, um, he was also sort of looking for a voice teacher, and he ended up starting to work with Laura Brooks Rice at Westminster Choir College, and he recommended her to me, and then I ended up going there and studying with her as well. And Laura was the one who sort of planted the seed, she would invite me down when her baritones were there, and I would sort of work alongside her and sort of uh, um, she would guide me in sort of the terminology and mm-hmm. and what I was actually saying or what I actually thought and in sort of a, a very great sort of educational way to communicate to the students. And that sort of planted the seed. And then as the years gone by, um, I I started doing a lot of programs. I started singing in a lot of places like Glimmerglass and Chautauqua 
and you know Utah and what uh, Washington National where there were young artist programs mm -hmm. and oftentimes I would do a master class and work with some of these students there um, and sometimes they would come back to New York and they would ring me up and they would say hey you know are you available can I have a lesson I really enjoyed that time we had together at Glimmer Glass mm -hmm. could we work together or I'm teaching an ex Utah young artist I gave him a lesson while I was here and so now he's studying with me he's singing in the cast of Porgy and Bess right now for Metropolitan right, we've Opera. We've seen some fun pictures he sent us of his Metropolitan Opera stage <laughs> debut, which has been fun. Where this is Markel Reed that we're talking about, who right. was with us um, about three years ago. So um, isn't it just wonderful to be able to give back in that way? I love it. And you know, it's giving back, but I also find that it's helped my own singing so much. To be able to put something in words and to have to describe it in so many different ways because you have to work with so many different personalities. You know this because right, you've done this for Everyone years and years. Everyone has a different brain and they process information so differently. Right. It's really helped my own art. It's helped me sing better. It's helped me perform better. I would concur. If nothing else, you're, you're accountable to your students to do excellent work because if they see you doing not living what you preach. Right. You don't ever want to be that teacher right. who is teaching and not doing. Right. You so want to do I'm both. always, I was, I was usually very nervous when I first started teaching when they would show up at my performances Absolutely. and I was like, oh, darn it. I really got to be on my game, you know? It's so, so funny how that shoe can be on the other foot because, of course, you know, I used to think that when my teachers or mentors would hear me perform and I'd be so worried. And then now I'm like, am I really living up to what I'm doing as a teacher? Yeah. So it keeps me very. Yeah, but I, but I think giving back is a really great way to put it. It really feeds my soul in, in such a different way, in such a wonderful way. When I see my students out there and sort of being successful, and I have quite a few of them now who are out in the regional circuit in America singing quite well, and it's just I, you just feel so proud and so happy for them. You know, it's really awesome. It's it's a uh, great, great gift. I know how important those were to me along the way and how it's the best thing of it. And I hope your students express their gratitude. I've been honored to be able to tell some people now that I've been in this business for several decades, I can go to them and, and really thank them for what they did to make yeah, that work. Absolutely. Really, I sound very sentimental, but I mean, those mentors, are. there's no substitute for a mentor who really... I know. Nurtures your talent or your, your abilities and sends you in the right direction. Absolutely. People who are so selfless and were just concerned with your well-being as a performer, as a human, and uh, they just give and give and give to you. Yes. So grateful for those people. Me too. Well, um, we've been fortunate to have lots of those people in our lives and also then great colleagues like Michael to just that I get to come and work with every day. And so we're going <laughs> to go do an orchestral rehearsal in a little bit Yes, where um, the singers are just going to sing. It's called the Zitz Probe. And this is uh, part of the process where the singers sing for the first time with the orchestra, but they don't do any of their acting. They don't have their costumes. They're just concentrating on the music making with the wonderful Utah Symphony tonight. But before we go do that, we are the Ghost Light Podcast. So <laughs> oh, I forgot about this part. So oh, yeah. we... Um, love to ask our guests if they've had an experience with a ghost or have a favorite ghost story they'd like to share and um, I mentioned this at rehearsal last night and it seemed like you had several to do so let's see what you've chosen well there so my father died when I was quite young he, mm -hmm. he passed away when I was 25 years old and so you know I was praying and praying and praying for a sign a sign a sign and so this is a real quick one I said 
you know, I was thinking about my dad and I was sort of speaking out loud to him and I said, so give me a sign. And then I was more specific. I said, red bird, let there be a red bird. And whenever I ask, there's always a red bird now. Well, that's amazing. So Isn't you, that so, so your cool? Your dad's watching and yes. keeping an eye on you. This is kind of spookiest one I ever had. Oh yeah, it's Hall- Halloween's <laughs> around the corner, so let's get a spooky one too. So I was quite young. I remember I was like 14 or 15. I wasn't able to drive yet, but I was coming back with a, from a family trip and I was exhausted and I came and all the lights were on in the house and my mother and father had gone to bed and I was on the couch downstairs and and they said Michael make sure you should turn off all the lights when you're up when you come to bed do not fall asleep with all the lights on blah 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 so I'm lying on the couch and I'm thinking wouldn't it be cool if I just had like a ghost friend who could just shut off all the lights and bam Right at that moment, all of the lights went off. Wow. I know. Okay, that's a good one. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for sharing that story, both of those. The amazing spooky one and that very sweet one about how your dad's with you at all times. I love that. And I'm so grateful that you just took some time out before rehearsal tonight to just sit and have a chit chat with me. Thank you for having me. I love Utah Opera. I love being here and uh, being able to share my craft and my art with everyone here. And we know we'll see him again on the Capitol Theater stage in the near future. I'm not worried about that. So thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Carol. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.